Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. I know you've been asked a few times now about a future career in politics. I will just ask it this way. What is appealing to you about that? And what is unappealing to you about that? I'm going to ask you a question first. And I want you sure. to be really honest because yeah. I always think this when I get asked this question. Like, do you think I should go into politics? I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hi there. Our guest this week is Megan Rapino, one of the best soccer players and athletes in the world. And she's here to talk about what it's like to compete in an environment where most of the spectators are online strangers with lots of opinions about your performance. I thought Megan would be good for this conversation for a few reasons. She just competed in the Tokyo Summer Olympics, which were pretty weird this year thanks to the Delta variant. Athletes couldn't leave their hotels, didn't know if some last-minute breakthrough case would force them to drop out, and had to mostly compete without any cheering fans. Just weird, fake crowd noise that was pumped through the speakers. So, naturally, a lot of athletes spent more time than usual on their phones, and for some of them, that wasn't very helpful. Suni Lee, an American gymnast, said that after she won the gold medal in the gymnastics all-around, she got so distracted by all the social media attention that she didn't do as well in the uneven bars, and she decided to quit Twitter after that. Other Olympic athletes talked about being the target of misogynistic attacks, cyberbullying, even death threats. We've heard similar concerns from athletes like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, and studies have found that more social media use among athletes is linked to less concentration, worse performance, and more anxiety. One response to this, usually from people on social media, is suck it up, deal with it. This is part of the job. But should it be? And how should today's athletes deal with the limelight and the pressure and shitty comments from random strangers on social media? I figured Megan would have some thoughts on this as someone who's had to deal with one of the worst Twitter trolls of all time. In addition to winning two World Cups and an Olympic gold medal, she's also a political activist who's spoken out on issues like equal pay, LGBTQ rights, and racial justice. This has earned her a lot of admiration, but also a lot of nastiness, hostility, and outright hate, most notably from Donald Trump and his supporters. In this episode, the two of us talk about the Tokyo Olympics, how she thinks social media is affecting athletes' mental health, what it's like to be targeted on Twitter by the president, and whether she should run for office herself. It was a really fun conversation, and I will definitely help out with Megan's campaign if she's crazy enough to do it. As always, if you have questions, comments, or complaints about the show, feel free to email us at offline at crooked.com. Here's Megan Rapino. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Congrats on the Olympics, on the medal, on being done. What was it like to compete in these games? Because you're halfway across the world, middle of a pandemic, dealing with all these restrictions, no big crowds. How did you process all that? I'll just start by saying I'm very grateful and <laughs> thankful that the Olympics were able to happen, that we were able Stipulated. to Stipulated. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you to the people of Japan for reluctantly opening your arms to us, but it was just like, I think having been to an Olympics before, it just was like, not, it wasn't awesome, but it was amazing to be able to compete. We knew that, you know, viewership wise, it was cool for people back home and, um, you know, getting the world back together, but there was sort of just no fanfare of any, of any kind. I feel like that's the most exciting part, obviously the competition and the fans and everything. Um, but just the general excitement, it just, it felt like we right. like could have been, you know, in like a conference room in Wichita or something. Well, they, they didn't let you out of your hotels really. Like, it's not like you could hang out in Tokyo, right? No, we couldn't. That was another thing. I was like, we're literally in like a top five city in the entire world. Um, yeah, I've been, to, yeah, I've been to Tokyo once. This was almost 10 years ago. Um, and it just had been dying to get back. And like every day on the bus, it's kind of like you're sitting there, like looking out the window, like, damn, we can't go out anywhere. I want to go. But yeah, I mean, in an effort, obviously, to keep everyone safe. But yeah, it was it was difficult. It was a difficult tournament for sure. How annoying was the crowd thing? Oh, 
Um, it was it was pretty tough to be honest. I think our having our sport outdoors in a in a really large stadium. Uh, we don't really play music during the games. Like I was able to go to Sue's um, basketball final and there was just more people in there, but like they play music and there's an announcer and there's just, it's smaller and you're indoors. So ours felt like it wasn't just that there was a lack of fans. It was like this deafening void of anything. (laughs) And so it was just like, you score a goal, you got scored on, you have a shot, you fall down, you get nothing. It was just like monotone the whole time. So it was, yeah, it was tough. What do you think it is about crowds that fire up athletes so much? Have you thought about that? I think it's just the the like response to the momentum. So it's like, you know, when you're doing well, you know, when you're, you know, if you have a shot or you score a goal, like you understand those things, or even, you know, when you're sort of doing poorly, but there's just like the buzz of the momentum and people, people just being like, it's kind of like everyone's just gassing you up. You know, we're used yeah. to like playing in front of fans and being a good team. And it's like, who doesn't want to just have a crowd just be like, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. Keep doing that. <laughs> just uh, straight up affirmation. Yeah, just, yeah, lots of affirmation. That was kind of like, yeah. I mean, I, I asked this because there's a more permanent, uh, noisier crowd that athletes have to contend with today, which is uh, everyone on the internet. This is what uh, the, this show is about here. The internet's. Um, yeah, so like you came of age as a professional athlete at a time when the internet and social media were becoming central to everyday life. Were there moments in those early years, 2009 or or 2012 when you first went to the Olympics in London, when you became aware that all these strangers were suddenly following you and talking about you? I don't think it was that early. It was like such a peripheral thing at that point. Like we didn't have any like sponsorships that were really tied to social media. You weren't, it was just like this weird place where you're like, I guess I could post a picture of this tree and I don't know if people like it or don't like it. Like it was just, even Twitter was just like, what's going on? We didn't really know how to use it. So it didn't feel, probably not until like 2014, um, was when I, it started to become, things were more tied to it and we were interacting more. We understood it a little bit more. And I think it became more involved in the sports space, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, it was like such a side thing that was like people sort of did, but weren't really into. Um, one thing that changed from those early years is that you became politically active. Um, I know you grew up in what you've described as a more conservative family and more conservative uh, hometown uh, and, a, and a family that wasn't overtly political, I think you said. When did you first realize that you cared about politics and that you wanted to speak out about politics? I think it was around 2011 and 12. Um, I think mm-hmm. I was, uh, you know, starting to come to the decision to come out as a gay athlete. Um, I didn't really like struggle with that personally, but it it started to it's like the team started to get more popular. I was sort of solidifying myself on the team and then just became this weird thing. Like, why aren't I talking about it? And then of course, um, even before that in California, I think it was prop eight. And then in, in 2012, I think there was like Supreme court cases. 2015 was like the Supreme court case. Um, so that was kind of like all in the mix. And I think coming out before the Olympics in 2012, it was like, okay, this is, this is going to be political and this is something that I kind of have to like understand how to talk about and, uh, but that I want to talk about, you know, we have all these cases going on and um, the sort of fight for marriage equality, um, you know, gaining steam. And it was like, how do we sort of get involved? So I think that was kind of my first understanding of it. And then even like being on the team from such a young age, um, you know, learning about like our contracts and collective bargaining. And then you talk Mm -hmm. about equal pay and all of that. It was kind of like, starting to connect the dots on inequality just in general. You got two very different reactions to the first big political statements you made. When you came out before um, the London Olympics in 2012, you said that there were few stories, people were very supportive, that it was a non-event. When you first kneeled during the national anthem (laughs) in 2016, people completely lost their shit. Um, What was it like to be you in those weeks following um, the first couple times that you kneeled? Um, 
It was interesting. Um, I, I think, admittedly, I was very uh, naive to the level of racism and this sort of just deep-seated. I mean, I saw the way that people were reacting to Colin when he first knelt and reacting to other players that knelt. Um, and I don't know if I thought like, oh, I'm not going to be treated that way. But um, yeah, I was, I don't know if I was shocked by it because it did like make sense. Like, I think that sort of solidified even just the way that I approach social media or the media in general. I was like, oh, I understand the game now. It's just like people are just going to be cynical about it. They're not actually listening to anything that Colin says. Like you can't go through, you know, Trayvon Martin and Ferguson and, you know, all of that, like 13, 14, 15, 16. And then, you know, kind of the culmination of Colin kneeling. And all that had happened with cell phone videos and high profile murders and everything. You can't get to the end of that and like, just be like, no, like clearly people just aren't listening. They're not even wanting to listen. So I, I, I feel like it was almost like a crystallizing time for me of like, okay, this is, I understand sort of what's happening. I know, I know that I'm like on the right path. I think the amount of like abuse and hate and, you know, all the wild stuff that happened. I was like, oh, I've hit the, I've hit the right nerve. Collins hit the right nerve and and sort of keep going down that path. So you, you make the decision to kneel and then how do you sort of process the reaction? Like, do people start telling you that everyone's really upset? Do you start looking at social media? Like when, when did you start realizing, oh shit, this is going to be a much bigger deal than I had anticipated? Mm, like the next day, I think. Um, I think I talked to my agent Dan, that night, maybe after I had done it, it was in Chicago um, for an NWSL game. So I think it was that night um, or maybe the next morning. And then I was, I, 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 hit, I think we were on a road trip or something and there was a big like sort of blow up with the other team because they played the anthem while we were in the locker rooms to prevent me. And then the owner was like, you hijacked the anthem. And I was like, I'm pretty sure you hijacked the anthem. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I felt like it was pretty, media. And I think we were more into social media at that time. I think I was more um, on it. And so it was just like this direct feedback. But then it really was like, everyone was like, oh my God, what what happened? What did you do? What are you going to do? What do you like? What's the plan? It was sort of immediate. Yeah. I was going to ask that because uh, I noticed in your book, you know, you don't talk about the social media reaction after you came out. And then you do talk about the social media reaction after 2016. Um, do you think that was only because taking a knee was more controversial or do you think the internet had just become more toxic by 2016? Um, definitely the internet seems to be more toxic all the time, but I, I, I mean, I think it was just way more controversial, um, kneeling. I mean, I think people were like at that point, like, okay, fine. The gays can have the rights. Fine. We're, we're on board. Yeah. Begrudgingly we're on board, but yeah, racism is a yeah, totally different beast, as we know. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code WELCOME to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code WELCOME at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code WELCOME. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. So your biggest internet moment, of course, came in 2019 uh, when a viral clip of you telling a reporter uh, that you weren't going to the fucking White House if you won the World Cup earned you a tweet from Donald Trump. Um, So between kneeling and the Trump tweet, like you went from being a well-liked, well-known professional athlete to both a right-wing villain and a resistance hero online. Uh, What was that like for you? I think I was, I like felt much more about the reaction in 2016 because I think it, it was like, okay, I've, you know, I've done this thing and supported Colin in this way. And like, it's really important. It's important. Everything that I say, and I say the right things and I'm pointing people to the, you know, to other people and, um, you know, sort of really kind of trying to quickly crystallize on the go how to be an ally and how to talk about things and how's the right thing to do it. So it felt like, okay, I need to get this right. And it felt very serious in that moment. I think by the time the Trump tweets rolled around, I think I was just much more solidified in who I was and how to talk about things. But then it was also just like outrageously ridiculous. Like even in the tweet, I was like, so you like it. No, you don't like me. You're not, you want, you, do you want us to win? No. Cause then we're not coming, but you already disinvited us, but you want us to win. So it was just like, I mean, he's a, you know, a buffoon in, in so many ways. And so it was just like this outrageous moment, but I just felt like, I think I felt so secure in myself at that moment and what we were doing as a team and the things that we were fighting for. And, you know, just sort of the world in general at that point that I was like, oh my God, you're trying to come at me. Hold up, sir. Like you are not going to win this battle. How much are you consuming the reaction online at that point? Like, are you looking at Twitter? Are you looking at Instagram? Are you hearing about it from friends? How do you process it? Uh, I am not one to get into the comments a lot. Um, Not because there's so much craziness, but I mean, part of that, but I just think there's anything in there that you want. Like, I think especially for a public person, especially for an athlete, we go out and we perform, we're constantly sort of like on a stage. So it's like, if I want to be told I'm amazing, that's in the comments. If I want benign, that's there. If I want to be told like I'm some, you know, crazy left wing like person, like it's sort of all there. So it's kind of all um, the same. And it's just, I think uh, on Instagram, it's like, I don't need to talk to 2 million people. I can just talk to the people in my life. So I feel like I consume more of the reaction, like from my friends, from, um, you know, obviously Sue and the people that I work with and my teammates. So that's more like, I'm like, I'm on base or I'm off base based on that. But I do know generally what's going on. I mean, I'm online. I know I'm not like, oh, I can't look at anything. I'm like, I know what the president said. I know what everyone's saying. Like, I know the wildness that's happening. What was it like for your family and friends? I especially think about your family because, you know, you grew up in this more conservative place in Redding, California, and, and you have a more conservative family. Like, what has it been like for them to sort of watch you become quite famous, but also this, like, right-wing villain? I think it's been hard in a lot of ways because I think, I mean, social media for for that reason is is difficult because you're opening yourself up or you're just opened up to anyone saying anything about you. And it has the same weight as everyone else. So like if my mom tells right. me something or if Sue tells me something or, you know, people I work with, whatever, that all of a sudden has the same weight as like, you know, egghead person that has like four followers. And it's like that doesn't. And I feel like they have a hard time sort of differentiating what's important and what's breaking through and what's not. Cause they'll just be like, Oh, this article is out there about, you know, whoever saying you did this. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's like not really real. Cause it's on Breitbart. So it's like, <laughs> that doesn't actually exist in the world, but how do you sort of balance that with them just seeing it? So I feel like they're understanding it better now. And I think taking it less personally, but they're also just like fiercely 
protective of me and they're like, I will come for everyone. I'm like, you're not allowed on social media. Don't ever comment back. I'm like, I'll tell you if it's real or not, if it's a problem. And I think, you know, sometimes our views differ and the views of, you know, people that they work with or their friends or people on, you know, their Facebook pages or whatever. So sometimes it's, I think, puts them out there much more than they would like to be out there, which I'm sorry about, but it's like, I can't really... I'm like, sorry, guys. It is, it is a hard thing with, with social media and media in general uh, with, with parents. I, I mean, I do the same. I have faced the same thing all the time because my thankfully my parents are not on Twitter or else God knows what they'd see. But um, they do have a, a Google News alert for me. Uh, and, and I have the same Google News alert just to check. And, you know, you get these, these stories that come through that, like you said, they're on not even Breitbart, on like random sites that no one cares about that no one goes to. And it will say a horrible thing about you. And I'll, I'll naturally get a text from my dad. And he'll be like, are you okay? Why did they say that? This is really bad. And it's hard to tell them like, no, 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 this actually doesn't matter. But it's like one of the problems with the internet, with social media, is it all hits with the same force and the same velocity. And exactly. there's like no sense of proportion. Exactly. I'm interested in what you think about how our extremely online world is affecting um, other athletes and their mental health. So this is an issue that's come up a lot recently, uh, especially during the Olympics. Suni Lee deleted Twitter after she said that, you know, too much time on the app caused her to lose focus uh, before the uneven bars. Athletes like Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, Simone Manuel uh, have all spoken out about the mental health challenges that come not just from competing, but from having to deal with a constant and, and very public blizzard of personal criticisms and takes and trolls. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about all that? I think it's really hard. Um, I, I always say this. I'm so thankful that I was much older when social mm. media really came about. And also that I was much older by the time, you know, 2019 and even 2016 came. Because I feel like if I was, you know, 22 or 25 or something, it's just that's really difficult. And I think having not grown up with it, I, I sort of understand the absurdity of it, or I feel like I do. It doesn't feel like it's part of me. It feels like it's something that I'm choosing to do, which I don't think a lot of athletes feel that way. And a lot of times we have to do, we got sponsorships and whatever. It's like this thing where it's like, it doesn't say anything about you, whether you can handle social media or not, you know, quote unquote, handle it, but you should know for yourself whether you can or not. And like, Mm. it's fine to just take a step away. I mean, going back to where we're talking about all things being weighted equally, when you are in a competition, especially a highly scrutinized one, and you have game after game, I mean, for us, this was um, a big thing. We didn't play that well in the Olympics. We certainly didn't play how we wanted to. We weren't having great performances. We got bopped in the first game. So then right from the jump, it's just like a barrage of negative criticism. But it's like, that doesn't really matter. I'm like, there's only a few people who you should be taking your cues from, but that's really hard when you have it all at your fingertips. And it's this thing that's so integral in our lives. I I think that we should talk more about taking breaks from it um, and having that not be something that's like, oh, you can't handle it because you're like not a strong person. Right. But it's like, well, you have 2 million people or 20 million people or whoever like telling you their fucking armchair assessment of your performance all the time. Like, what if someone just came to like my mom's job and was like, oh, well, the way she, you know, she's a waitress. It was like, oh, the way she picked up that plate, that was terrible today. It's like, what? Like, and then you start thinking about the way you're picking up plates. It's like, you just need to pick up the plate. So it gives people too much power. But I also think as athletes, we do have the power to step away from it and to at least take a break or block people or do it in a certain way that protects us a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there was reaction from all the usual suspects that was very predictable, which is like, you know, you're all professional athletes, you're public figures, this comes with the territory, this is what it takes to compete. Um, I don't know if that's part of what it takes to compete, right? Like, I I don't know, like, do, do you ever have moments where all this online bullshit criticism is in your head when you're trying to play or can you always shut it up? No, I wouldn't say I can always shut it out, but I think having some like extreme cases of just wild social media stuff happening, especially around kneeling and especially in 2019, I think I just try to take it with, you know, a huge bowl of salt. And it's like, take the good that you can from it and and sort of leave the rest because it's like, 
egghead on Twitter really doesn't matter. Yeah. I like try to keep my circle tight and definitely if I'm doing something wrong, I'm getting a lot of phone calls about it. People in my life are not shy. They're like, what are you doing again? What did you do? What did you say? Um, So I feel like I get like enough of the people uh, that are just in my life probably trolling me. I don't need to listen to the trolls as well. (laughs) Do you have do you have advice for younger athletes starting out who, you know, have spent their entire life on social media and are dealing with all this pressure? I would I would say to try to not take it um, too seriously. I would really work on your in real life or, or if I'm talking young people, your IRL relationships. I think those <laughs> those are a lot um, just more honest, I think. And I think it's hard sometimes. It's like when I go in there, it's like if I play great and I go on my mentions, I'm like, yeah, I feel pretty good about myself. You know, they're like, you're amazing. And this is awesome. You know, people are tweeting at you. But I just kind of feel like you can find whatever in there. So having more emphasis on the people who actually are invested in you and whose opinion you actually care about because they know you and they can be hard on you or they can give you a compliment. It actually means something. But it seems like we only really focus on the negative comments for social media anyway. So it'd be one thing if we could like, you know, see a good thing and see a bad thing and and weigh that. But it always seems like the good thing doesn't register with us. It's like only the terrible stuff that registers. Not just like the good thing. There could be a hundred great comments, a thousand great comments. And then it's that like one nasty comment that gets in your head and that's what will stick with you. Mm -hmm. Are you more of an Instagram person than a Twitter person? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I like fashion a lot. So I'll like follow fashion sites and, you know, the pictures are nice. Um, sometimes I find my attention span being so short, I actually can't read a tweet and I'm just like, this is alarming. <laughs> well, this is a lot. It's probably from Instagram from like scrolling so fast, <laughs> but I'm like, you can't even read a tweet. Oh my God, this is terrible. But I do like, like, I feel like, like Twitter more for news. They pasted a statement in this tweet? Yeah. That's way too long. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> what? You went to 280 characters. Okay. I like, I think I like, you know, for more news stuff, Twitter for more like fun stuff, Instagram, but. Yeah, but like you said, actual tweeting yourself can can get you into trouble pretty fast because there is really there's no nuance and there's no context and no one is going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that. Yeah, it's like the amount of times I go in to do a tweet and I'm like, you know, what? it's really not worth it. It's just <laughs> it's just not worth it. <laughs> so I interviewed Gia Tolentino for the series, who wrote a fantastic book about how much the internet sucks. It's called Trick Mirror, and one of her points is that the internet makes communication about morality really easy, but actual moral living really hard. And so you see a lot of brands and celebrities and other people tweeting and posting expressions of solidarity with movements for racial justice and LGBTQ rights or equal pay. But you don't see as many people participating in acts of solidarity, like strikes and boycotts and grassroots organizing. As someone who has done all of the above, what do you think of that? Does that strike a chord at all? Oh, absolutely. I think it's like social media, particularly with movements, it's like you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. So it's like you kind of have to, unless you're just an asshole, you kind of have to like be like, yeah, I'm down with, of course I'm down with Black Lives Matter. You know, it's right. like, of course I'm this. I think people feel forced because they don't want to be called out. But I'm like, if you don't want to be called out, why don't you just be about it? There's no mechanism to capture whether people are being about it or not. So it's like, you kind of have to do, you know, the post or show solidarity or whatever it is. But then I think people, I think some people are just overwhelmed by what to do um, and are sort of paralyzed by that. I think some people are lazy and they don't want to do it. I think like it does take work and it is something that takes a lot of effort to be a meaningful part of a movement. It like takes self-education and spending your time or your resources or whatever it may be. I think some people don't want to do that. Um, but it is that thing where it's like, yeah, it's like, what does a post, what does a, a solidarity post sort of mean anyways. It's not a bad thing because then you see, you know, these movements sort of, you know, rise up on social media, but it's also given people, I think, an easy out to then where the move, where it dies down, then it's like, 
oh, we don't care about Black Lives Matter anymore, or we don't care about trans lives, or we don't care about the border, or we don't care about healthcare, we don't care about any, we just sort of go back to our normal lives. And I think Instagram and and just social media in general, but I think the Instagram gives you that like serotonin hit of like, I'm doing good, you know? And it's like, yeah. only you really know if you're like doing good or not. <laughs> and that's that's the interesting part. Well, it's like, hey, uh, what are we posting this week? What's uh, what's the thing that we're supposed to be posting about? Okay, yeah, no, I'm there. I'm down. Great. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to go uh, just live my life and do whatever I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just going to scroll on the rails. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just, I, but I do think I do think that's one of the one of the big problems. Well, you wrote at the end of your book that you're always asking yourself if you're doing enough or if what you're doing is effective. Have you found a way to answer those questions? Not really. Um, cause I think the answer is we could really just all be doing, you know, a lot more, but also I think people get paralyzed by the fact that if you haven't like quit your job and you're not just like knocking on doors all day long, then you're not doing anything. And so what's the point? Cause I'm not going to do that. So like, what's the point of doing anything? And then you just end up doing nothing. But I think that giving yourself a little bit of grace while also asking yourself those tough questions, like, are you, you know, choosing to read educational books that are thrown in with the other books that you like or podcasts mm. that maybe like aren't your favorite podcast, but it's important and it's going to open your mind up or reading different authors. So maybe if it does come up in a conversation, you can actually speak to it. And like those conversations are important and, you know, with your family or with your friends or your coworkers, like sometimes people think you have to do this big action to be like doing work in the world. And Sometimes it is just being educated enough to be like, this is where I got this information and you can help to sort of change the conversation or guide the conversation in a different way. Have you seen any opinions change uh, in your hometown or your family um, since you've become politically active? Like, have you had offline conversations that are perhaps more productive than the insanity that we see online? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I've forced all of us <laughs> into these conversations <laughs> whether people liked it or not yeah, yeah i'm like well we're getting into it um uh, yeah i think i really have and i think you know over the course of the last you know five years i think people are starting to understand the interconnectedness of all of these issues whether it's me too movement equal pay black lives matter uh you know healthcare, whatever it may be i i i feel like you know, especially with my family, because I do speak out about a lot of different things. I'm, I, I think it's sort of connecting dots for them a little bit. You know, it's just kind of what it is. And I think I'm just passionate about it in general. So when I go home, those are conversations that we're having. And it, it doesn't always have to be about that. But like, if I'm in the room, it's like, and you say something wild at a family dinner, I'm like, well, we're probably going to have to talk about that. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code WELCOME to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code WELCOME at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, 
because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. The fact that you grew up in a conservative family, did that shape the way that you talk about politics, that you think about politics? Because you've had an experience of, you know, being around people that you love that, you know, thought very differently than you. You know, it's so interesting when I look back. I don't I feel like I didn't know anything about politics when I was younger. It was mm-hmm. I didn't know like I didn't have any sort of language to put on. I didn't know like liberal conservative. I was like I knew Democrats and Republicans, but we never really my parents weren't super politically active. Um so we just didn't really like talk about it that much and it wasn't till I was older and I had the kind of like language to understand these different things that I actually realized I was like I think we grew up in a pretty liberal household. Like my mom and my dad both worked. Um, my dad worked construction. So he worked more in like the morning and the day. My mom was a waitress. She worked at night. So like, you know, the morning things were my mom's. But when we got home from school, she went to work. My dad like made dinner and bathed us and did homework with us and did the laundry. And they they both sort of did these like differing gender roles. And I think just in general, we have more of a matriarchal family. So then like coming back to it later, I was like, are you guys sure that you're conservatives? I'm like, I'm not, especially my mom. I'm like, are you sure? I'm really like, are (laughs) you a closet liberal? Yeah. I'm like, I don't really believe this and I don't really get it. And I, I sort of get it in the context of, you know, where they live and yeah, but I'm just kind of like, I don't know if you guys are that conservative. I don't think you are. No, I, I say this too because I think, you know, I grew up, I had, a, my parents are Democrats, but I had plenty of Republicans in my family. Um, I went to a college where I had plenty of professors who were conservative. And so I sort of came of age in politics with people who are conservative around me. And so I sort of learned to argue and persuade. And I feel sometimes that the longer I spend online with people who very much agree with me, and people who very much don't agree with me, that I sometimes forget that there's like most of the country is not like that at all. And mm-hmm. that most of the country is made up of people who you actually can persuade if you make the right argument and have conversations that include nuance and subtlety and empathy for someone else and putting yourself in their shoes. And like the times that I talk to voters, go canvassing or do Zoom canvases, whatever we did in 2020. Like those are the times that I'm like, oh, this is actually both harder than I thought to convince people, but also more doable than I thought. Do you ever had that experience? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's like the thing about Twitter too. It's like this world is like, ah, this is what Twitter's saying. And it's like the majority of the people aren't even on Twitter. They don't even know what's happening on Twitter. They're just really kind of like worried about their lives and what's going to affect them you know, much more on a local level or, you know, different policies, or it's just like, I don't know, my parents were conservative or my parents were liberal. So, you know, you just like these things get ingrained. But yeah, I think the majority of people are not on the the polar side of things. And so you can have a conversation, you can come at, you know, the same issue with maybe a little bit difference in nuance and points or what's important to you or what's not. Um, no, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that with my family too, they're like, I'm with you on this. I don't know about this. And I'm like, okay, I can, we can, we can sort of balance that out. But yeah, I find it much easier to just have those conversations in person as well. I mean, I'm sure you see this, you get some wild stuff on Twitter too. I've had in my whole, my whole life as a, as a wild person online, one person ever come up to me and say, I don't agree with, you know, what you're doing. They did it in a very polite way. Really? No, I've had like booing from fans but like nobody's just coming up and saying these crazy things. Like we're all just much more similar than we, than we are different, obviously. What was the conversation with that person like? Um, we were in the hospital. I think I was getting like an MRI or something, um, some sports thing. And we were in the elevator together and it was um, a man and his wife. And I think the wife was like, oh, are you making a It was right after the World Cup. He's like, oh, are you making a pino? Like, you know, big fans. And then the husband, um, he was like, 
well, I just have to say, like, I wish you represented America, you know, better. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry that you, you know, feel that way. And then like the doors kind of open and he kind of like zoomed out. And I was like, okay. <laughs> sorry it. I didn't represent us better. Yeah. Whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we just won the international tournament. Okay. Thank you very much. I know you've been asked a, a few times now about a future career in politics. I will just ask it this way. What is appealing to you about that? And what is unappealing to you about that? I'm going to ask you a question first. And I want you to be really honest because I always think this when I get asked this question. Like, do you think I should go into politics? Yeah, I do. You do. See, because I'm always like, this is the problem with politics. It's like some, you know, famous person has nothing to do with politics, is totally unqualified. (laughs) Like, I don't don't know if my sociology degree from college that was really more sports focused is really like well suited for politics. I'm like, maybe I can, I will absolutely, I love the idea of being involved in politics, using my platform. Maybe I bring people to politics that wouldn't normally be in it. And then I'm like, can I hand them off to, you know, someone better? I mean, okay, let's think of, what we really want in a, in someone who is an elected leader, right? Like, uh, we want someone who deeply cares about the issues, who's going to do the work, right? Who um, believes that, like, I don't think that traditional qualifications, right? Like, it, I had a political science degree. I didn't fucking use that. I also had a sociology <laughs> degree. Um, I, I took, love sociology as a major. Great major. Oh, it was awesome. Um, so much fun. It's <laughs> like, this is that. fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. Um but like, I don't, I don't think we've had a lot of experts and a lot of people with deep experience in politics that didn't get us anywhere very good. I think you need someone who is, who is fundamentally good, who cares, who has passion about things. And also the fact that you, you know, for, you didn't ask for it, but you're famous. You have this big platform, right? Like people, when you speak, your words have weight with people. And I think at, at the point we're at now, when what I worry is that a lot of people will turn away from public service um, mm-hmm. and, and elected office, because I do think, I mean, we're having this conversation about the internet. Like, I think that online culture selects for people now who um, can really withstand a whole bunch of public criticism all the time. People always talk about, oh, if you run for office, like, yeah, there's skeletons in your closet. Forget about all that shit. It's not about like any deep, dark secrets. It's like the thing you said on the internet two weeks ago that could come back and bite you, right? So you have to have, I think, this kind of personality that can withstand public criticism. And when the haters come for you, just be like, I don't really fucking care about that. It's just people saying whatever. And if you are in it, not just for the fame or for the office or for money or for whatever else, but you're in it because you genuinely want to make a difference in other people's lives and you think that you could somehow do that by, you know, being in elected office and passing legislation and making people's lives better, then I think it's a, it's not a bad thing to do. Okay. Yeah. I can get down with that. I do agree that the way it's like, we know the standard is ridiculous because the standard to be a politician is perfection. You have to be perfect. So it's just like this ridiculous standard that is kind of like ruining it. It's like, but I'm, I'm sensitive to the, like, to the, just the celebrity. I think we have, I mean, obviously we're celebrity president and that was a big disaster um but i'm sensitive to the like yeah that why why would i be qualified over someone else but i guess you're right it's really just about like caring for the issues being willing to fight for the issues and being willing to articulate your message and galvanize people to ultimately care for themselves like i always say whether you like politics or not because a lot of people be like oh i'm not i'm not really that political And I'm like, well, it's engaging with you, whether you're engaging with it or not in a major way in every aspect of your life from the moment you wake up. So it's like, that's what I'm passionate about is like making politics cool or making it something that people are just even a little bit more interested in. Cause like your life will be better if you're more engaged. And I think we saw that, you know, with the elections last year and people getting involved all over the country. It's like, I think, you know, people can, obviously we're in a pandemic, but I think people can say like, things are better this time this year than they were last <laughs> last year. And at least yeah. we have some, you know, sort of semblance, but it's like, this is what the majority of the people wanted. I mean, the standard, the standards that we 
have had for politicians for a long time. You're right. They're gone. They're gone because of Trump. Um, we had a, a celebrity president who wasn't qualified for anything. Oh um, that's not to say that like, well, you know, if Trump could be president, anyone could be president, though. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but it, it is to say that I, I think what drives a lot of politicians today is fear more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so they are afraid of pissing too many people off. They are afraid that they're going to do something that, that, that gets them kicked out of office. They are so afraid of losing this office, this title. And that drives all these decisions. And that makes them come off as like very inauthentic. And they're reading talking points and they're evading answers and they're doing all this bullshit and stuff like that. And I think if we had more people who weren't afraid, who were like, I'm going to say what's on my mind. I'm going to say what I believe. I'm going to say what I'm going to do. And if you don't like it, that's fine. You don't have to vote for me. And guess what? I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to mm -hmm. say something online that pisses you off. I'm going to have a bad tweet. I'm going to I'm going to not pass a bill once and it's going to suck. But like I'm going to fight really hard all the time mm -hmm. and I'm going to work to be better. And that's the best I can do because I'm just human. Like if we heard more politicians like that, then I think I think we would be better off. And I think more people would be willing to go into public service and into elected office, which is what we actually mm -hmm. need, you know? Yeah, this weird, like, morality police with, you know, online behavior and all of that is just, like, making people twist themselves into uh, knots that they can't get out of, they can't do anything, can't do this, they can't say this, they can't do... And it's just like, well, you might as well just say fuck it and, like, do what you want because if you twist yourself that tight, you're never going to get elected again anyways. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like... Right. Well, and like, and that's true for everyone online. Like you do there, look, there, it, it, in some ways it is good to police or, or to call out truly offensive speech online, right? For like that's sure. a huge problem, for sure. a huge, huge problem. On the other hand, we do also have to have some kind of room to let people make mistakes and learn and grow and apologize mm -hmm. and accept those apologies I don't necessarily think we found the balance between when we should really call someone out and when we should say, okay, what you did was bad, but we're going to let you apologize and, and then come back into mm -hmm. public life. Do, do you, what do you think about that? No, I think you're exactly right. It's just like, we don't allow people to just show up and be like, listen, I don't know everything. I don't know how to fix everything. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to be really genuine about it. And if I fuck up, like I'll, I'll be the first to say right. that. And I think we, we just, that can't, that we're not even in a place where like, you can even like apologize for something. Well, that, well, one other problem with Trump, one of the many problems with Trump is that he has, uh, he has proven that uh, apologies are weakness, right? And that if you just never apologize, it's fine. And when people see other people apologize and then people say, oh, that apology is not enough. The apology makes it worse. What it tells people is, oh, fuck it. I'm not going to apologize then because the assholes who don't apologize, they get away with whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the Internet forgets about them. and They just keep going on. They just keep charging through. But mm -hmm. the people who do apologies, but well, that's weak. And then we'll we'll pile on that. That is a real the apology thing is a real problem. That is it, it is. It's like this ridiculous standard that we're holding everyone to that everyone knows totally doesn't exist and is not real. But for some reason, we're just like getting behind these wild ass people who have no soul. And I'm like, yeah. they have no soul. Like, that's like a clear, like we can all agree, like Mitch yeah, McConnell has no soul. Has no, no, he's <laughs> lost his soul decades ago. Yeah, decades but no, ago. there's, I think there's just a huge lack of that in general. Um, I feel like I get asked that, like, even just from teammates and stuff, like, you know, how do you feel so comfortable talking about all of these, you know, different things? And I'm like, listen, I try to do as much research as I can. I'm not an expert. Never said I was. And I don't, I can't ever be. I'm never going to know everything. And like, if I fuck up, I will say it. I'll be, you know, the first one out there saying, or to at least try to, or hear the feedback. And I feel like that does allow you to grow. It allows you to be honest with people. It allows you to have a dialogue. And I think, I mean, honestly, that, you know, no one's giving Donald Trump any flowers, but that's something that people did like is that he would just show up and while out. And it was different than this just like very canned response. It's like, we know what you're going to say and we know what the comeback is and all that. Well, the people who have spent their entire lives planning to run for office and making every single decision in their lives 
that would lead them to have a better chance of <laughs> like that is suspicious to people. Suspicious. <laughs> that is suspicious, I right? Know. Like when you when you look like you're someone who has it all planned and has been doing it forever. Yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a little weird for people. Um, last question I'm asking all of our guests: um, What do you do to completely unplug, and uh, and how often do you get to do it? Oof, completely unplug. Um, I mean, vacation is always nice. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen very often at all. I wish it. I wish it was like. When was your last vacation? Did you get a vacation after the Olympics? No, no. I went home for uh, for a few days um, back to California. Um, so I guess it was kind of. It wasn't what I would consider a vacation. I love my family. Vacations like beach, um, chilling yeah. somewhere. Um, gosh, I don't know what I do to totally unplug. It's hard to put the phones away. <laughs> put the phones away. They're like right there. I'm like, damn you guys. Um, I think we do, both Sue and I kind of take our nights really chill. It's like once, you know, what is it, 520 now? Yeah, once like 536 kind of rolls around, um, we can sort of um, relax. Um, I'm a cannabis user as well, so that always helps to just be like, see you later. Put the phone down, pick up the edible, chill out for an hour. The nights. (laughs) On that note, uh, Megan Rapino, thank you so much for, uh, for joining Offline. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. Our producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, and Sandy Gerard for production support, and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Milo Kim, and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.